So starting in John 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Thank you for reading for us, um, Daniel. I've got to confess there was a, a glitch there in the bulletin, so I'm going to read those last two verses. I'm going to add them on there. So, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how then will you believe my words? Well, we're on our third week um, in this series in John. Um, you can find some space for notes um, there in the bulletin on page three. And uh, if you keep that scripture passage open, we're going to be diving into that together. But before we do, let's ask for the Lord's help in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for, uh, for these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that, uh, that they are your words, uh, the words of the one true God. And we pray now that as, uh, as we consider them together, that you will move our hearts to believe them, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to experience life in his name. And we pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week I closed out my sermon with these words. Imagine someone showed up in America today. They claim to have the authority to bypass the president, to bypass Congress, to bypass the courts. All judgment has been given to me, they say. I have a unique relationship with God. I am equal with him. I've been given this unique role by God. God has put life and death in my hands. And so your future depends on one thing and one thing alone. It depends on your response to me. Now, it's possible, as I say those words, that you began to feel a bit unsettled. Because it strikes me that both sides of the aisle accuse people on the other side of the aisle of saying very similar things to these. 
And so I want to be clear that I was not getting political last week. Uh, my aim was simply to help you grasp the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, by his spirit, through his word, this is exactly what Jesus Christ says to us in John chapter 5, at verses 19 through 30. He claims to have a unique relationship with the Father. He claims to have been given a unique role by the Father. And so he demands a unique response of total allegiance, a response that is called for by the Father. And the big question is, what should we do with this claim? Uh, should we believe what Jesus says about himself? Uh, and then why? Why should we listen to Jesus when he says such incredible things? I mean, many people have shown up in history claiming to be God, from, from the crazy guy on the subway to cult leaders like David Koresh or Jim Jones. Uh, claiming to be God is a relatively simple thing to do. You could turn around to your neighbor now and claim to be God. And so why should we take Jesus seriously? Uh, why shouldn't we just chalk this up to yet another kook in human history? Uh, and this is obviously a relevant question if you're here today and you are not yet a Christian. Uh, it, perhaps it's a very important question for you to ask, why should you take Jesus seriously? Uh, but even as Christians, I suspect we don't take Jesus' claims quite seriously enough. In the details of our everyday lives, often we fail to acknowledge who he is, or perhaps we lose our confidence. We believe in Jesus, yes, but we, we don't build our lives on him. And so we all need persuading that Jesus should be believed. And, and fortunately, that is the theme of John chapter 5, the rest of this. Uh, verses uh, 19 through 30, in, in those verses, Jesus tells us who he is. And in verses 31 through 47, he tells us why we should believe him. In fact, Jesus actually addresses two big questions here. Uh, firstly, why should people believe? And then secondly, he also explains why people don't believe. And as he answers those questions, he challenges and encourages us. Uh, in fact, this should remind us that our faith is not just a blind leap in the dark. Instead, our trust in Christ is founded on real evidence. And if that evidence doesn't persuade us, well, we begin to get a, a picture of the reason why in these verses. And so in the next few moments, we're going to look at these two questions. Firstly, why should people believe? And then secondly, why don't people believe? Uh, firstly, why should people believe? More specifically, why should people believe the radical claims of Jesus? And now, as I've said, so far in John chapter 5, Jesus has been talking about himself. But let's be honest, uh, to be convinced, that simply is not enough. Now, I could tell you a number of things about myself, uh, like a game of two truths and a lie. Here are three things about me. Uh, I have met the queen. I've run a half marathon. Uh, I once accidentally ate the paper wrapper on an ice cream. Now, figuring out which of those is true would surely be a guess, unless you had some sort of evidence to support them. Well, likewise, in verse 31, Jesus says this, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And now, Jesus isn't saying that he's lying there. Rather, he's saying that on its own, his own testimony is not persuasive. As we read in Deuteronomy, every charge must be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so imagine we're in a law court here. In these verses, Jesus calls on three corroborating witnesses. Uh, behind all of them, there is one primary witness. Uh, that witness is God himself. Look down at, at verse 37 with me. At John chapter 5, verse 37. Uh, the Father who sent me 
has himself borne witness about me. And yet the Father uses various means. Uh, There are three of them. Uh, There are personal witnesses like John. Uh, There are powerful works like Jesus' miracles. And finally, there are prophetic words, the words of God uh, breathed out and and written in the scriptures. Uh, Firstly, there are personal witnesses. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus calls on the testimony of other people. More specifically, the first witness here is John. Look at verse 33 with me. Speaking to the Jewish leadership, Jesus says this, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now, to be clear, he's referring not to the John who wrote this book, but instead to John the Baptist, who we read about in chapter 1. John was a bit of an oddball, we have to say. He was out there in the wilderness preaching, baptizing people in the river. And John's message was very clear. John's overall point was this, it is not about me. That's what he said. I am no one special. Instead, someone greater is coming, and that someone you're waiting for is there. It's Jesus Christ. And now John was an incredibly popular person. Look at how Jesus describes John there in verse 35. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Everyone loved John. Everyone flocked out to see him. And so in one sense, Jesus, as Jesus calls John to the stand, it's, it's almost like he's, he's appealing to a celebrity endorsement. This is like Michael Jordan putting his name to Nike. Not, of course, that Jesus needs man's endorsement. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Jesus doesn't need John's testimony. So why does God send John in the first place? Well, this is incredible. I think it it points to the great kindness, the compassion, the mercy of God. Uh, Jesus continues, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, the reason God sent John before Jesus is because he loves us. I mean, Jesus could have just shown up with a bang. Surprise, I'm here. Uh, But God is kind. He loves us. He wants us to be saved. And so, so he sent John the Baptist before him. God is compassionate towards our weakness. He knows that we struggle to believe. And so he sent John ahead like like a motorcade that travels before the president. John came to clear the roads, to let us know that God was about to show up. This is the kindness of God. Instead of just showing up, he wanted to get us ready for him. And listen, in the same way, I want to suggest that God does the same thing even today. He provides personal witnesses, people like John, people who can help us believe in Jesus. I'm not necessarily talking about celebrity endorsements. We're not talking about Tim Tebow or Justin Bieber. I'm talking about people that God has put in your life, people that you love, people that you respect, people you know and trust who take Jesus' claims seriously. These are mere men and women just like John. And yet people who, in their better moments, do what John did, that is, they do their very best to point you to the Lord Jesus. They could be friends, family members, neighbors, a preacher, even a a TikTok influencer. And listen, some of you, many of you, most of you are those people in the lives of, of other people. God has placed you into someone's life, and he's called you to be a personal witness to the Lord Jesus. Not that your mere presence is going to persuade someone to believe, and yet you do have a part to play. At the very least, you can demonstrate to your friends that that Christians aren't just crazy. Well, you might say, no, they aren't just crazy. There's a whole lot more wrong with them too. 
Uh, but you know what I mean, I think. God can use your integrity to witness to Jesus Christ. And if you're here perhaps as somebody who is not yet a Christian, uh, I want you to consider this, that the, consider the Christians that you know. I'm sure some of them may be uh, rotten, eggs, rotten eggs, but, but, but think of the Christians you know. Maybe a Christian who brought you here today. Uh, do you believe that they're people of integrity? Well, that is one of the means that God uses to witness to himself in your life. Uh, and yet we should say this isn't the only thing that God uses. He also uses powerful works, personal witnesses and powerful works. In, in verse 36, Jesus draws attention to his own mighty miracles. He's appealing to the physical evidence, we might say. Just like you see on the TV shows or those court feeds, often you see lawyers holding up photos or charts or, or showing the trajectory of a bullet or playing some security video. Well, in the same way, Jesus here draws on exhibit A. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And now the context is important here. We need to remember that Jesus is, the reason Jesus is having this conversation at all is because he has just performed an incredible healing. There was a man there unable to walk for 38 years. And now he's there dancing down the streets of Jerusalem. And that's not the only thing Jesus did. He's turned water into wine. He's healed an official son by speaking a word 100 miles away. Next week, we'll see him feeding 5,000 people with just a few loaves. We'll see him walking on water. We'll see him, him raising from the dead a man who had been dead for three days. Uh, Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be equal with God. Uh, and there's no denying the things that he does are God-like things, aren't they? Uh, I mean, imagine for a moment that I claim to be some high-ranking spy. High up in MI6, uh, I could pull the levers of power inside the British government. And now I have to say, I did once consider applying for a job at MI6. Maybe I did. Maybe I got it. Maybe that's why I'm here this morning. Who knows? And not to leave you guessing, but I think my physique should tell you that I'm no James Bond. But imagine I made such a claim. Well, what would you say? You'd say, prove it. And of course, I'd say, if I did, I'd have to kill you. Anyway, imagine I made such a claim and you said, prove it. And so I pick up my phone and I make a call. I ask the government to nuke some small island, uninhabited island in the Atlantic. And then you check your newsfeed and you see the headline, stray bomb blows up island. Well, it would perhaps maybe cause you to believe what I'd said, wouldn't it? And in a similar way, Jesus claims to pull the levers of power in heaven. I mean, it's a crazy claim, and yet you see the universe obeying his commands, sickness leaving, bread multiplying, dead people coming back to life. His miracles, we should understand, aren't just a sideshow, nor are they simply designed to help people. John, in his gospel, calls them signs. The point is they are evidence, exhibits A, B, and C to prove what Jesus claims about himself. Now, I admit, you might not find this persuasive. Uh, I mean, 2,000 years later, we read these things in an old book, but how can we be sure that they really happened? I mean, isn't it quite possible all of this was made up? Uh, haven't Christians gone back, we might say, and tampered with the crime scene? 
And how do the miracles recorded in the Gospels help someone believe in Jesus Christ today? Well, if that's how you feel, firstly, let me ask you to examine your own heart and, and consider why is it that you feel that way? Now, you should know that for almost 1,800 years, very few people ever questioned the miracles of Christ. In fact, the best non-Christian sources from around the time even themselves acknowledged that Jesus did some pretty amazing things. And then you've got 12 guys, 12 guys who saw what happened. Uh, people who reported it at, at great personal cost to themselves. Uh, people who were willing to die in all kinds of brutal ways. Uh, I mean, to escape death, all they had to do was admit that these things were crazy, that these things never happened in the first place. And as I've said, for 1,800 years, most people believe that they happened. Of course, they may not agree on the interpretation of them. And then culture took a turn. Uh, people began to believe that they were so smart so much more intelligent than people who came before, uh, and they decided that miracles could never, ever happen. And so, well, if miracles could never, ever happen, well, these miracles of Jesus Christ must never have happened either. And hopefully you can see the problem with that. There's kind of a logical fallacy, isn't there? Uh, can you see how the starting assumption really just becomes the conclusion? I mean, it's an example of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Uh, he referred to it in this way, the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age, as well as the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. Apparently, the people were all idiots back then, and so, of course, they believed in miracles, but we're a whole lot smarter than that today. Well, I'd suggest that's just bigotry. I suggest that we have a little bit more of an open mind than that. I'd suggest that we maybe take a more historical, more scientific approach. I'd suggest that it might be helpful to have a little bit more humility, perhaps some objectivity. Uh, read the historical accounts of Christ for yourself. I encourage you to do that. And decide what you think for yourself. Don't just kind of flock with the other people. Uh, and, and as you do, as you consider the claims of Christ, take account of these two things that we've already seen. And consider the personal witness of people you know uh, and trust who believe the claims of Christ. And then secondly, consider the powerful works of Jesus recorded in the Gospels today. Uh, and then thirdly, there's another witness Jesus, call, Jesus calls upon. Uh, that is, he calls upon the prophetic word, the prophetic word. Uh, by which I mean the predictive prophecies recorded in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, look down at verse 39 uh, with me. Now, this is where Jesus pulls off the gloves. Uh, I mean, think about who he's talking to here. These are very religious men. Uh, these were priests, bishops, pastors. Many of them had PhDs from the Jerusalem Seminary. Uh, but look at what Jesus says in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Uh, but it is they that bear witness to me. And now implicit to what Jesus says here, or perhaps even explicit, is an incredible claim. Uh, this is the claim that the whole Bible, the whole Bible is ultimately all about Jesus. It's like the Bible is up there on the witness stand. No matter where you open up its pages, the message, according to Jesus, only corroborates his claims. Uh, later on, down in verse 36, he even claims that, that Moses, Moses wrote about him, really? And Moses wrote the books that document history from, from creation through the establishment of Israel. But where do we find Christ 
in those books. I mean, think about it. Actually, from the beginning, he is there. Jesus is the promised serpent crusher in Genesis chapter 3. He is the new and true Noah, the one who will rescue us from the flood of God's judgment at the end of history. He is the true sacrifice, the one to whom Isaac points. He is the greater prophet, one like Moses, who, to whom the people should listen to. Jesus is everywhere in the Bible. He's there on every page. And so if, if you're not a Christian and, and want to know whether Jesus' claims are true, what do you need to do? Well, I want to suggest that you read your Bible. If you don't have one, then pick one up at the back. Grab one. Take it home. Read it. Maybe start in Genesis. Read one of the Gospels as well. And if you are a Christian and if you want to grow confident in your faith, what do you need to do? Well, the answer is you need to do the same thing. Read the whole Bible, if you can, all the way from Genesis through to Revelation. The whole Bible points us to Jesus Christ, and so the whole Bible confirms and establishes our faith. I mean, imagine this. Imagine uh, you were taking your family away on vacation. You'd book this excellent place on Airbnb, a beautiful house right next to a lake. Uh, the views are incredible. The house itself is huge and, and so beautifully decorated. Uh, you enter the address into your phone and, and then you set out and a couple of hours later, finally, you make it or, or so you think. Uh, as you pull up, the house is, is tiny, it's all run down and, and the lake, well, is nowhere to be seen. Uh, you start to question, how much did I pay for this again? Uh, and then one of your kids gets your attention. Dad, they say, look, look across the street. Uh, and there in all its glory is the house that you know you booked. Uh, you drive up, you head inside and you take in the decor and the views. Uh, how do you know that this is the right place and not the other one you pulled up to first? Well, the reason is you've seen it all before. You read about it in the description and you've seen it in all of those photos. Uh, well, if you will, the Old Testament provides the description and the photos of Jesus Christ. Uh, for hundreds of years, people were waiting for him. Uh, and when Jesus Christ came, uh, what he said was this, actually, I have come, but, it, but I perfectly matched the Old Testament listing. Uh, now, I find that deeply persuasive, uh, deeply convincing that Jesus Christ perfectly fulfills uh, words of prophecy written hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, uh, especially when you take it together with everything else we've seen. Uh, personal witnesses, people we trust who point us to Christ, powerful works, amazing acts of strength and compassion that demonstrate Jesus' true identity, uh, prophetic words, the promises of God now come true. At the perfect match between Jesus and everything that came before him. What do you make of all of this? Are you persuaded by it? Can you understand, according to Jesus, why people should believe in him? And yet we have to say, don't we, many people just aren't convinced. Maybe you aren't convinced. And so let's move on briefly to consider a second question. Uh, we've considered why people should believe in Jesus why they should embrace his claims. Uh, and now let, let's think about why people don't. Uh, why don't people believe? Why aren't they convinced? I, I mean, think about this for a moment. Based on what we've already said, the people Jesus is speaking to should have been more convinced than anyone. In terms of personal witnesses, they, they love to listen to John. In terms of powerful works, I mean, they've personally witnessed Jesus' miracles. In terms of the prophetic word, these people knew the Bible better than anyone else. 
I mean, many people say, don't they, if only I had I, seen this with my own eyes, if only I'd heard it with my own eyes, then I would believe. In other words, people claim, I would believe in God if God made himself clearer to me. And yet God couldn't have made himself clearer to these men, could he? Uh, to these men, uh, Jesus is speaking very, very clearly. And so they serve as a kind of test, as a kind of x-ray. Uh, they show us the roots of unbelief. They help us understand, when it comes to belief, what it is that lies below the surface of it. Uh, and what we discover is vitally important because it tells us a lot about ourselves. Uh, if I can summarize, what we really learn here is this, that the roots of unbelief aren't rational, they are relational. Uh, the roots of unbelief aren't rational, they are relational. Uh, what I mean is unbelief has absolutely nothing to do with a lack of evidence. No, the reason these people don't believe in Jesus really is twofold. Uh, firstly, it's because they don't love God. They don't love God. And then secondly, it's because they long to be accepted by other people. I mean, firstly, it reveals their lack of love for God, doesn't it? I mean, this is true of all of us. We don't love God as we should. And so when God appears in the flesh, it is no surprise that we reject him. Look at verse 39 again. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. And yet you refuse to come to me. See that word? You refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Now Jesus doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. Rather, he means that they don't love God. And so because they don't love God, they, they fail to understand God walking in front of them. They miss what God is saying. They reject what God is doing. They refuse to come to him. They fail to embrace the evidence that God has provided. Why? Because the evidence isn't good? No, because their hearts are set against it. And maybe you've been in relationships like this. Someone you know has just decided that you're, you're a bad egg. They've made up their mind. You're a crook. You can't be trusted. And so it doesn't matter what you do, what you say. There is no way you could possibly convince them. Oh, well, so it is with humanity and God. Uh, at the very beginning, we turned our backs on him. Uh, we've tried to live life our own way as if we are God. Uh, we've made up our minds about God, if you will. And deep in our souls, from the moments we're born, there is a deep seated, settled hostility against him. And this is what the Bible calls sin. At its heart, it is a lack of love for God. And this is the reason it doesn't matter how much evidence God gives us. That is why the very people who heard John, who saw Jesus, who read their Bibles, uh, these are the very same people who went on to crucify Jesus. It is a relational thing, that's the point. The reason they don't believe is because they hate God. The reason we don't believe is because we hate God. And listen, one of the very first steps to becoming a Christian, to believing in Christ, is simply to acknowledge this about yourself, to accept this. And to accept the fact that you don't love God as you should, but instead of being for him, are in your heart of hearts against him. And as you begin to recognize that, you discover this amazing thing, an amazing truth that we already confessed in Romans chapter 5. That despite this fact, despite the fact you're a sinner, God still shows his great love for you. That God sent his son to live the life that we fail to live, to die the death that we deserve. And in his love, he doesn't leave us or forsake us. 
In his compassion, he sends personal witnesses to our lives. He performed these powerful works in human history. He's given his, his word in his great love to draw us toward him. And so the first reason people don't believe in Jesus is because they don't love God. Uh, But secondly, uh, the second reason is because they long for acceptance by others. Look at what Jesus says about his listeners there in verse 45. It's really quite shocking. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Uh, But then look at verse 44. Here he, he describes why. Why do they reject Jesus? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not see the glory that comes from the only God? And now what does this say about why people don't believe? Well, let's be clear what the reason is not. Uh, It is not because of a lack of evidence. It is not because the claims of Jesus Christ just can't be substantiated in some way. Uh, Here is the reason. It's simply this. It's because believing in Jesus Christ is unpopular. You see, one of the big problems is that people are sheeple. We all like to flock and follow the crowd. All of us are seeking the glory and approval of man, of other people. And I mean, I suspect that all of us know at least one person who is is not a Christian for precisely this reason. I think of a Jewish friend of mine, a good friend, great guy. At one point, he was eagerly seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. He and I met together to read the Bible. He seemed to understand it all. He seemed to agree with Jesus Christ, even over and against his his own Jewish rabbis in the synagogue that he attended. But when it came to the crunch, he told me he could never follow Christ. And of course, I asked why. And he put it very simply. This is a man who understood. He said to follow Christ would mean, mean being disowned by my family. You see, it wasn't anything to do with the evidence that God gave him. This man was truly convinced. Uh, but why didn't he believe and follow Christ? Well, well, the problem was the cost. Uh, he loved the glory that comes from people. He wanted his family to love him and appreciate him more than he sought his heavenly Father's approval. Uh, and so it is with many, many people. Maybe it's even that way with you today. Uh, the reason you don't believe in Jesus Christ is truly relational rather than rational. You don't love God, and you long to be accepted, to be welcomed, to be popular amongst other people. If so, then maybe, hopefully, God has begun to break in today. And if you're a believer, but but you have your doubts, hopefully God has been working within you as well. He's been working to encourage you to strengthen your faith. Why should we believe? Well, because of the personal witness, because of the powerful works, because of the prophetic word. Uh, These things can and should persuade all of us to believe. So why don't people believe? Well, a lack of love for God, a longing for acceptance with others. All of us, all of us face these temptations, don't we? Uh, And so we need God's help. We need God's help daily to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. And so let's turn to him now. Let's, Let's seek God in prayer. Let's ask him to help us believe and trust in Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Uh, Father God, we thank you so much uh, for these, uh, these powerful and sobering words from, from John's gospel, words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Lord, we pray that through them you would penetrate our hearts, that you would stir in us true faith, uh, that you would convict us and challenge us and encourage us as well. Uh, Lord, we acknowledge your great grace and kindness to us. Uh, we should, by very nature, believe in you, and yet you're a God of compassion who, 
who, who seeks to persuade us in all of these various ways. And so we pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would we'd bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.